0: Father, we are your people, and uh, we've been scattered a bunch of whole, amongst a whole bunch of families this week. Some of us are kind of worn out because of all the family stuff that we've been doing. Yet we come together now as an extended family, as a spiritual family, and we place ourselves under your authority. We recognize you as our good father and our ruling king. We, uh, we adore you, and we trust you, and we love you as the good father that you are. We honor and we respect you and we obey you as the king that you are. We thank you that you've given us your word and we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds so that we can understand what you're saying to us through the pen of St. Luke so many years ago. Help us to know what you're saying. Help us to know what to do with it and give us the courage to do it. Work through us, shape us more into your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you've got a Bible, open it up to the book of Acts, please. We are working through the book, and uh, we're going to be starting in Acts 5 today. You're going to look at page 913, if you've got a pew Bible. So far in Acts, we've seen how God has birthed and rapidly grown the new Christian church. They've gone from just a few people hiding in an upper room, afraid for their lives, now to thousands of people gathering regularly in the public, in the court of the, the Jewish temple, Boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. They have been told to shut up and go home, but they have refused. They have said, We must obey God rather than man. And so you tell us to be silent, you tell us not to speak the gospel, the life-giving words of Jesus, and how could we possibly stop doing that? And so they continued to gather publicly in Solomon's colonnade on the outside of the temple day after day. We saw how Peter and John, two of the main leaders of the church, had been arrested and they had been uh, scolded and Uh, intimidated and then sent out and said, don't you ever talk about Jesus or the resurrection again? And they said, well, you can tell us that, but God himself told us to tell everybody about this. And so we have to obey our Lord rather than you. Today, we're going to pick up with these guys still doing the same thing. They're still proclaiming the good news of Jesus, that your sins can be forgiven, that you can be born again and adopted into the family of God, not through your own goodness or your own works, but simply by turning from your sinful life and placing all of your trust in Christ. They keep proclaiming this to the people of Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is working through them, performing miracles that attest to the authenticity, the authority of the messengers and the message. And today they're going to find themselves in trouble again. Acts 5:17 through 42. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him that is the party of the Sadducees and filled with jealousy they arrested the apostles and they put them in public prison. Now, this is a little weird for us in America, right? To imagine a a world where the high priest and a religious party somehow have the authority to simply go arrest people and put them in prison. How is it that the religious system and the state system are so mixed that the religious leaders can arrest people and put them in prison? Our system of government intentionally separates the authority of the church and the authority of the state, and so it's hard for us to imagine how this works, but through most of human history, throughout most of the world, the line between religious and state authority has always been blurred together, and it, honestly, most of the time, it ends up pretty bad, pretty deadly. Because when you consolidate state power and religious power, they multiply in the hearts of those powerful and they rise up, usually eventually as tyrants, and squash people. In this case, the high priest of Judaism is a member of the party, the Sadducees. Remember, there are two main religious parties at that point: the Pharisees, who are the very conservative ones, and they're the they're the the small town people. They're the ones that are spread out all over the is the nation of Israel. They are the ones that, even though they were enemies of Jesus, they were Mostly loved by the people. like They had their people's values. They, they guarded the traditions of the people. They took all of the Old Testament seriously. Said this is the word of God. We must obey it. Then you had the Sadducees. And they were, they were much more politically and socially and religiously liberal. They said, we're only going to take the first five books of the Bible. We're going to ignore the rest. We're not going to believe in an afterlife. We're not going to believe in heaven or hell. We're not going to even believe in spiritual reality for humans or angels or anything like that. What's physical is real, nothing more. These were the academics. They were, they were clustered in Jerusalem. They were, at that point, in power religiously, even though they were a minority And the thing that they hated most about these early Christians is that they were proclaiming that not only is there life after death, but that life after death comes through Jesus, the Messiah whom they killed, and he rose from the dead, conquering death. They just couldn't stand that. They were they were so angry about this. How dare these backwater northern fishermen come and and defy us publicly? And and look at the crowd that they're pulling together. How dare they do this? And so in that mixed religious and civic pool of power, the high priest rises up, arrests Peter and John again, and puts them in the public prison. Not just hidden off somewhere, but publicly where they can be seen so the message is clear to everyone. Do not cross us, or you will end up like them. But God has a different plan. God's going to intervene miraculously here. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel, whom the Sadducees say don't even exist... An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So maybe they had a couple hours. Maybe John could go back to his buddies. He's probably... 18, 19, maybe 20 years old at this time. He can go back to his buddies and and tell them about what it was like to be in prison. Peter can, maybe he can go back and have a few hours with his wife before, as the sun rises, they obey the angel of the Lord and they are found in the temple doing the very thing that they have been told not to do, publicly, boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And the guards don't even know they're gone. Now the high priest came, and those who were with him, and they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel. And they sent to the prison to have them brought, but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. This is kind of like a cartoon, right? Or... If you remember way back to the days of the Andy Griffith Griffith show, this is Barney Fife, who is, he's just, he's so goofy and incompetent that he could, he could be on guard at the jail and that somehow the prisoners would escape and he wouldn't even know that they're gone, right? twenty four. When the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed, no kidding, about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Now, when Luke is writing this, he's got to be chuckling, right? Because this is so comical you got all the most powerful people in Jerusalem together, plotting and scheming what they're going to do with Peter and John, how they're going to make them into a public spectacle, not even knowing that they are already back in the public doing the very thing that they've been told not to do. And then you can imagine this this one guy comes in and interrupts the the argument. He says, "Um, your honor, excuse me, but uh, you remember those two guys that you put in prison? I think they're back out in the temple. It looks like them. It sounds like them. I don't know how they got there, but it looks like they're there. 26. Then the captain, that would be the the captain of the temple guard, with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So things are changing now. The boldness of Peter and John is emboldening the people they're recognizing a movement of God here. They they can see that their official religious leaders may actually be the enemies of God at this point. And the religious leaders are sensing this, They're like, we're going to have to be careful here. We can't just go take them by force, or the people may turn against us. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, "'We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, "'yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, "'and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us.'" Now, notice how Luke wrote that. The high priest questioned them, and then there's no question. It's just this accusation that's filled with anger. "'We told you not to do this. "'You're doing it anyway.'" And notice at the end, you intend to bring this man, the Jesus, this man's blood upon us. His blood was upon them. They were instrumental in the wrongful trial and beating and crucifixion of Jesus. But they don't like being blamed for that. Especially as thousands of people are placing their faith in Jesus. For me, I hear a bit of a goofy soundtrack in the background as they're looking at each other. Like, What are we going to do with them? How, how is it possible that they have even gotten out of the prison? But they don't ask. They don't say, how would you get out? Who let you out? They just want to scold them. How dare you teach in Jesus' name? We told you to shut up. We've warned you twice. What are we to do with you? You obstinate fools. Peter and the apostles answered. We must obey God rather than men. He said this to them before. He's reminding them again. God has said this. You have said something against it. We must obey God. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. Peter's going for broke, right? Such boldness. You know, in a sense, it makes, it makes sense. He's just been rescued by angels from prison, told to go proclaim this truth. Of course, he's, he's full of boldness, right? God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. It's almost like he's dangling that in their face. Like he's, he's saying, look, you think you're the leaders of Israel, but I know the real leader. He's the one that you killed, but God has raised from the dead, and he offers you forgiveness of your sins. Yes, you religious leaders who are so full of yourself, you are full of sin, and you need to be forgiven, and you need to repent and trust in the name of Jesus, whom you have told me I can never preach about. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him, unlike you guys, who are disobeying God. That's the implication there. You're fighting against God. God, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is living in us, Peter is saying. He is bearing witness to this truth. You see it happening. You know you can't deny it, and yet you are still fighting against him. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Luke is not being overly dramatic here. These are the people who killed Jesus. They have murdered. They can do it again. I don't know if you've ever been uh, in such an argument that you you thought maybe the other person was so filled with rage that they might physically hurt you. Maybe you even feared for your life. I've never been in a situation like that maybe you've been on the other side of that where you you just you found yourself so full of anger that you you didn't know if you could keep control and and maybe you lost control in some ways and maybe at some point you stopped and you thought what is going on how how did i get so out of control and this fear that maybe you could have even killed the person came over you that's what's happening in these guys peter and john are continuing to obey God rather than them. They're continuing to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, and it has filled these men with rage. If their eyes could glow red, they would be glowing red at this point, right? But God's not concerned. God is not afraid. God is not worrying, wringing his hands, thinking, Oh no, what's going to happen to my guys now? God is going to do a very unlikely thing. He's going to bring an enemy of Jesus, an enemy of God's people, and use him to bless God's people, to help God's people. But a Pharisee, the guys who were always fighting with Jesus. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Right? Get them out so we can talk, they can't hear us. He said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. Be careful, guys. Slow down. Let's think about this. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, that's not the same Judas that helped Jesus be killed. That's a common name then. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Now that's really surprising to me. Not just that God would use a Pharisee to speak this this wisdom and this caution, but that the people who are so seething with anger that they're ready to kill Peter and John are so quickly convinced to slow down, see what happens. He's got this historical argument. You remember these two guys, they had their rebellion and it came to nothing and they were killed and eventually all their followers dispersed. Let's just... Let them have their thing. Besides, if they keep drawing crowds like this, the Romans are going to come and squash them anyway. So just leave them alone. That's the historical argument. Then there's this theological argument, which is profoundly humble. We're, we're told that Gamaliel is a teacher of the law, held in honor, in honor by all the people. So he's, he's high up there. Like everybody respects him. Right? He could be so full of himself, he could say anything at this point and maybe convince them. And yet he says you might even be found opposing God. That is a rare humility, especially in a leader. This reminded me of what is now a pretty famous meme that's going around where you got the two Nazi guys and the one guy says, Hans, are we the baddies? This comes from a sketch that's now 15 years old, if you can believe it, where two Nazi soldiers are, are talking in their, in their bunker, and they're, they're starting to realize, well, maybe we're on the wrong side of this war, right? And the one of them voices that now famous phrase that's been attached to all kinds of things, Hans, are we the baddies? I think that's what's going on in Gamaliel here. What if we're on the wrong side of this? What if we are actually opposing God? Me, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law. What if me and my buddies are working against God? That's a pretty rare humility. Because we love to believe with all our hearts that we're on the right side. So the, the are we the baddies meme? If you go back and you look at like all through the Trump presidency... The enemies of Trump used this in order to attack the supporters of Trump and say, look, you guys don't realize it, but you're on the wrong side. And then as soon as Biden is in his office, it just flips and all the, the supporters of Trump are looking at Biden's people and say, look, you guys don't realize you're on the wrong side because we very easily go back and forth and believe that the other person is always on the wrong side. And yet Gamaliel here has the humility to say, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe we're actually fighting against God. Verse 40. They're not just going to take Gamaliel's advice and, and let him go free. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. If you live in a society where the authorities can arrest you for simply saying something that they don't like and they can decide that they really don't have a case against you and they're going to let you go, but they're going to beat you just to teach you a lesson so that hopefully you'll shut up, you live in a society where there is really no justice. Right? This beating that they incurred would have been public. They were probably tied to a post at least their upper garments stripped off of them. And then they were probably beaten 39 times, which would have been standard at that time, with a, a three-stranded leather whip. And you can imagine as it, as it comes, it wraps around their body and snaps at the end, the pain as it cuts into them. And then they can do nothing about it. They just just flinch up waiting for the next one and the next one and the next one, 30 time, 39 times in a row. Not because they're guilty of a crime, just because they need to be intimidated, to be put in their place. So did they leave broken? Did they leave defeated? 41. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, that is the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, that the Messiah, is Jesus. What are we to make of this? Are they, are they insane Have they lost so much blood and are they so malnourished and thirsty that their minds are not working correctly? Are these just crazy religious zealots that can't think Clearly, how can they be beaten, released, and go away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus? When I think of counted worthy, I think of good things. So if you're a football team that is counted worthy to play in the state playoffs, we know some people like that, That worthiness is a good thing. They have worked hard. They have disciplined themselves. They have conquered all of their foes. There's just one left. And so they are worthy to to stand at the top and fight for the championship. But that's not what they're talking about here. They're saying we're worthy to suffer. Now, if the the high goal, the thing that you're trying to be worthy of, the the thing that you're celebrating is suffering, then I don't really want to be a part of your little club, right? Because my life, my, my way of looking at the world tends to always view suffering as bad. I want to avoid suffering. I will work very hard to avoid suffering. You guys are probably the same way. Suffering is not something that I hope I'm worthy of, I don't want anything to do with it. I, again, I'm dating myself here, but I think of Wayne's world. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. Or please, don't count us worthy of this suffering, right? To wrap up today, I want to look at a couple short pieces of the scripture, and I'm not going to say much about them. I just, I just want them to kind of get into you. I want, you, I want them to shape you. Almost two years ago now, when the crazy COVID stuff was getting started, I talked to Steve Short over at Beamsville, and I asked him, how, "How are your people doing? How are they dealing with this?" And his his response was was typical Steve, but in a way a little surprising to me. He said, "They're doing fine. For thirty years, I've been teaching them what the Bible says about suffering. They're ready." Quite the statement. So let me teach you a little bit about what the Bible says about suffering today. It'll help us understand how these two Peter and John could leave their beating rejoicing. In Matthew 10, 16 through 22, we have Jesus himself saying this to Peter and John and the rest of the crew. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So we, we've got four animals going there. The disciples are like sheep. They're being sent out into a world that is like wolves. Who do we expect to win? Obviously the wolves. The sheep are vulnerable. The sheep are defenseless. The sheep do not stand much of a chance against wolves. And yet Jesus says to his best friends, the ones closest to him, he says, like sheep, I'm sending you out to be with the wolves. I'm sending, not you're going to find yourself there, but I'm sending you purposely as sheep to be amongst the wolves. And then he says, therefore, so be wise as serpents. So this throughout cultures, all over history, the serpent has always been thought of as a uh, A sneaky, wily, wise, patient, planning kind of animal. So we, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, we automatically think back to the serpent in the garden. And we think negatively, don't don't be like the serpent. But what Jesus is saying here is the, the wisdom, the carefulness, the planning, the sneakiness of the serpent, that should characterize you. He means that in a good way. But you should also be as innocent as doves. So you're not going to use your sneakiness and your wisdom for evil, like the serpent, but you're going to use it for good. You're going to use it for peace. You're going to use it for gentleness. That's what the dove represents. He goes on, verse 17. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, or in this case, in the temple courts. Jesus is promising this. This will happen. They will deliver you to the courts. They'll flog you in the synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, not because they don't like you, not because you're just causing trouble, but for the sake of Jesus, he says, this is going to happen to you, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles, the non-Jewish peoples. Jesus said, these things will happen. Don't be surprised, guys. They're coming. Verse 19, when, not if, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. I mean, supernaturally you will be guided, you will know how to speak the truth in that moment. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. We spent a lot of time with our families this last week, right? This is a picture of such family dysfunction that probably none of us can really imagine. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child. What kind of dad surrenders his child to death because of what they believe and proclaim religiously? Children will rise against parents and have them Put to death you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved these are the words of Jesus himself to the men whom he handpicked to be the leaders of the new Christian religion this is sobering see the promises in there the one who endures to the end will be saved. When it happens to you, you don't need to worry about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit of God the Father will be speaking through you. For honest, we wish that Jesus really hadn't said these things. Right? Or that Matthew, in this case, didn't bother writing them down for us. We would rather at least be able to just secularize this idea and and say, look, no pain, no gain, right? You're going to have to go through some stuff, but it's good for you. Jesus goes way beyond that. I think of uh, Dan Allender. He says this, most people want to grow, but the price of growth is pain. Now, Dan Allender is a Christian theologian. He's written lots of Christian books, but that particular sentence, you don't need God in there at all, right? If you want to grow, you got to go through suffering. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, on account of me, for my sake, you will suffer. That's different. Or consider Tim Hansel. Pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. We cannot avoid pain, but we can avoid joy. So things are going to come against you in your life, and you can choose to respond with joy. That's good advice. How are we to do that, though, when the things that are coming against us are our brothers or our parents or our kids, and the reason they're coming against us or the reason we're being beaten in public is because of our allegiance to Jesus? How could we possibly consider that joy? James, another one of these guys, promised he would receive suffering. He says this in James chapter 1 Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing, so the encouraging thing for today is if you are going to follow Jesus, expect suffering Isn't that great be encouraged right? something to be thankful for Thanksgiving weekend right but wouldn't it be far worse if If God never addressed this in his word and we were just left to discover it by surprise and feel entirely abandoned, I thought that if I followed Jesus, everything would be great. And yet I'm suffering. It must all be false, right? No. God short circuits that foolishness by warning us ahead of time, saying that you will even suffer because of your allegiance to Jesus. And when you do, you can count it a joy because it's going to strengthen your faith. It's going to turn your faith into steadfastness. It's going to make you perfect. That doesn't mean without sin. It's the word after it. and Complete, lacking in nothing. If you, if you want to grow and be complete in your faith, suffering is part of the equation. So it can bring you joy. We don't tend to face a lot of religious persecution in this country, although there are some who are trying to to ramp that up for us. There's currently legislation being considered that would make it uh, illegal for religious child care providers, so like over here at Trinity, to hire people in such a way that they require them to adhere to Christian religious teaching. The folks over at the, what's the name of the child care at Trinity? Kindergarten. Folks over at Kindercorner on this new le- legislation, they would be forced, say, to hire somebody of an LGBTQ persuasion against the teachings of the Bible, against their own convictions, their own documents, or lose any federal funding. And for many child care facilities, federal funding makes the difference between solvency and insolvency. this legislation is trying to make it illegal to practice what christians have practiced for the last 2000 years and then it's going to use the power of money to coerce how how would you respond in that situation the same same thing is being done with christian colleges and universities almost every christian college university in the united states receives federal funding at least through their student loan programs that get passed through to the kids, current legislation being debated that colleges would not be able to hire or discriminate in their hiring or even discriminate in what they teach if it goes against that LGBTQ plus agenda. Doesn't matter what the Bible says. Doesn't matter what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. If you say these things, you lose all your federal money. You lose all of your students who lost all of their federal loans and grants. And almost every Christian college and university in the country will be shut down because of that. How would you respond? If they're going after the daycares, if they're going after the colleges and universities, of course they're coming after the church too. In a matter of years, I now consider it likely that our church will no longer be a nonprofit organization because, in order to keep our nonprofit status, we would have to agree to shut up and be silent about certain things. That is the direction that many people are working right now. How will we respond? obviously in a representative democracy we need to fight against that we need to try to make that not happen but if it does happen will we be able to respond with joy in that suffering but there are parts of the world where the suffering is a lot more acute so last week in Nigeria in West Africa again the Muslim Fulani herdsmen killed 10 Christians burned 100 homes in a particular village, making 690 people temporarily homeless. This has been going on for years in Nigeria, over and over again. Since July 2009, look at these, 10 million people forced to flee their homes. There's only 11 million people in Ohio. Imagine the state of Ohio forced to be homeless. Because of religious persecution. 72,000 defenseless civilians killed. Defenseless. No weapons. Many of these mothers working at the stove. Children at school. Dads working at the farms. Shot down with Russian-made rifles. 18,500 Christians permanently disappeared. Don't know if they're alive or dead. They are just disappeared. 17,500 churches attacked 2,000 Christian schools attacked that was the last 12 years 10 killed last week at the very same time that the federal government of the United States said we're going to take Nigeria off of our watch list for religious persecution it's not a big deal over there anymore Our world is messed up. And if you follow the true Savior and leader of the world, the messed up world is going to fight against you. Are you ready? Are you grounded in the word? Are you understanding what the Bible says about suffering so that you are not only willing to stand on the truth of Scripture, but that you are willing to suffer for it? Are you training your kids and your grandkids to suffer well? Are you simply letting the world train them to avoid suffering at all costs? There is great joy to be had in the midst of suffering for the sake of Jesus. It is my prayer that all of us in this congregation, when we face suffering, will be supernaturally empowered to embrace it with the joy that Peter and John did in this story. Let's pray. Father, we trust you, and sometimes we tremble at the thought of what it might mean if we continue to trust you. We live in a world that seems darker every day, that the changes are coming fast, and they're confusing, and we don't know what's going on, and that sometimes it feels like you have abandoned the world, and, and it's out of control. And yet, the word tells us, your word tells us that you are the sovereign ruler over all of it. Help us to trust you in that. Father, when there are divisions in our families where brothers are fighting against brothers and kids are fighting against adults, Lord, even if it, even if it turns ugly and maybe it's physical, Maybe it's a breaking of relationships that never heals or takes years to heal. Lord, I hope that none of us ever reach what you promised there in Matthew, where family members are killing each other because of their allegiance to you. Lord, whatever mess we're facing, whatever mocking we face at school or at work or fears that we have about our our jobs as Somebody says we have to do something and we don't want to do it and we're religiously opposed to it. We don't, we don't know what to do in these situations, Lord. Give us wisdom. Give us strength. Give us humility. Somehow give us joy, Lord. Not a, not a fleeting happiness, not a, not a, a rejoicing in our, in our circumstances that are so great right now, but a deep down in our hearts, joy that celebrates even when evil seems to be getting the upper hand. Because we know that in the end, you conquer all of it. You will reign forevermore. So Lord, help us to take encouragement in the fact that you have warned us about all of this. You have equipped us for it. You have not abandoned us You have not left us to figure it out ourselves, but you have told us what we need to know. Help us to learn what it is that you've said to us in your word. Help it to go deep down into us so that when we suffer in small ways or great ways, we can trust in you and we can rejoice in you that we are counted worthy to suffer for your name. We will proclaim through your strength that you reign forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.